Ah, the weekend. Thank Crunchy. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. The so-called prank was predicated on the notion that menstruation equals women and that women equal weakness and that women are on the back foot and that they are weak compared with masters of the universe like Tiger Woods. I know, you know, we'd all seen those initial pictures on the television, but what you found when you got there? Uh, It was carnage. Uh, Pure, uh, just absolute disaster. Um, We had had the the, the news on 24-7 until we got out there trying to keep ourselves up to date and preparing ourselves for what we're going to see. It was very different when you get there. There's an internal life going on. We don't know to what extent. We don't know what that looks like. I think part of what music therapy does across the life spectrum is it honours life as it finds it. And we'll start out the weekend with Callan's Kicks and the Lilt Man. Who's your sexy daddy? What on earth? I'm dressed as the Lilt Man and I'm in mourning. Oh, yes. <laughs> One heart that Lilt is no more. Oh. I'm very, very sorry for your loss. Thank Andrew. you, thank you. That'll be all, Sabina. <laughs> hmm. Thank you very much, Mr. Your Grace. Uh, President, sorry, it's been a while since I interacted with a public figure. Yes, well, me too. May I offer you something to drink? Oh, oh it would be a tin of lilt. Sorry. But he's gone. Oh, gone forever, be dead. Dear, oh dear, sorry, sorry. <coughs> so, so what is this that one can do for you? A state funeral. I beg your pardon? A state send-off for tins of lilt. Oh. One last tilted greatness for lilt. I don't see how that would be possible. Picture this. Me, formal Hawaiian shirt, Ugh. ukuleles galore, delivering the eulogy in my low, whispery voice. Oh, well, if there's a speech to be made, perhaps I would Stop be... Stop all the clocks! Oh, dramatic. Cut off the telephone. Well, I had mine cut off years ago. It really reduces the amount of duties they can make one do. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Oh, Mishnock would be caught dead with Lilt. He only drinks Cremant now. My tin my dream I'd drink it all day long I thought that lilt would last forever I I was wrong Moving, yes. I'm sorry, but one has bigger concerns than your favourite fatally problematic soft drink being canned. They've stopped canning it. That's the problem. Oh, sorry, I'm... It is the end of the tin. When Callan's kicks... Now he's almost 50 years old, but Tiger Woods was under the spotlight after he released his inner anchorman, making a joke about performance and periods at the Genesis Invitational. Here's Joe on the live line. But apparently Tiger Woods and Justin Thomas teed off, one uh, Justin Thomas teed off force, and then from his, his poker, from his pocket, Tiger Woods produced a tampon and he slipped it into Justin Thomas's hand, okay? And then the two of them had an incredible guffaw of a laugh. Uh, but this was done in full view of the cameras. And if anyone is conscious of cameras being there all the time, it is Tiger Woods. So what was that about? Okay, two golfers. Uh, Helen Dawn. Helen, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Have you, a golfer, have you ever come across this before, Helen? Absolutely not. Just, I, shocked, never heard of such a thing. It's not. A, it's not a thing in golf. Absolutely not. No. Okay, Claire Henry. Uh, Claire, have you? You're a lady captain in Callan Golf Club. Have you ever come across it, Claire? I haven't come across that particular gag, Joe. No. And you Callan know? Do you know what it means? 
Look at Joe. It, it can mean a few different things. Okay. Um, first of all, it's not a million years ago that ladies were not permitted to join a golf club or play golf. Unbelievable, yes. Unbelievable. Unbelievable as it sounds, but it's not a million years ago. And there would always be an underlying joke about lady golfers being mm-hmm. not as good as male golfers. As gentlemen and golfers. Are gentlemen golfers. Yeah. And I suppose, I'm, I'm presuming the gag was was in relation to the fact that Justin Thomas's shot wasn't as long. Like Tiger and Rory um, did his, his drive. Justin Thomas was a good bit back mm-hmm. from where, the, where, where Tiger and Rory learned it. And the gag was, it would be, oh, look, that was more like a woman's shot than oh, a man's shot. So we... From Tiger, a technical point of view, women's tee boxes are further ahead yeah, yeah. on most holes than may, the men's tee boxes. Okay. And that's in every golf club on most of the holes. But it, it, it was a gag. It was in bad taste. It was in poor taste. When I saw it, I thought, oh, tut, tut, Tiger. Silly, silly man. He should know better. Well, that's Claire there. Then Emma called Joe. When I heard about this, I, I I was kind of stunned, you know, and um, I couldn't I couldn't really I couldn't really gather my thoughts for a moment. But then it occurred to me that you could roll your eyes and tut and say, mm-hmm. "Oh, more of the same," and dismiss this as infantile, puerile behaviour. However, I think it's important not to stop at the eye rolling and to actually speak out about this, okay. as it's much worse than just mere infantile behaviour, and on many levels. And I think, firstly, the so-called prank was Mm. predicated on the notion that menstruation equals women and that women equal weakness and that women are on the back foot and that they are weak compared with masters of the universe like Tiger Woods. And secondly, I think that this nonsensical so-called prank reduces all women down to a tampon, which clearly shows that Woods and Thomas deem women beneath them. And the surreptitious manner in which he handed him the tampon mm-hmm. as well, because I saw the clip, pathetic really, and the way that the two of them snigger and put the arms around each other suggests, first of all, that like uh, your previous uh, caller, uh, that he had planned, said uh, that he had planned this so-called joke. And so he knew at some point he was probably going to beat your man or whatever, and he was plotting this. And then the way the two of them laugh shows that they share the, the sexism of... So they knew, uh, they knew what... They both knew what the gag was. Yeah, totally. And you can see the arrogance of the pair of them and the, the way they strut off. And but apparently... That, I didn't see it, but apparently Justin Thomas threw the tampon on the ground. Exactly, he did. I saw that. And, he, and that is another thing that I wanted to mention because the way he so quickly flings it to the ground, shows a kind of revulsion um, on, okay. on, it, on it touching its hand. You can see the revulsion because, of course, these things are still not talked about. Um, you know, things have changed a lot and so on in the last particularly the last 10 or 20 years, but these things are still a bit taboo. And um, but you could see the revulsion and the idea that he would be associated with this thing, but then he laughs it off because, of course, it's, it's like the this big men's club and you know in the last couple of years mm-hmm. fellas are getting a lot of bashing there's a lot of man bashing going on in the last few years and some of it may be deserved but some, there are plenty of really decent fellas knocking around you know well that's Emma there then Brian called Joe to explain the joke 
The reason for it, and it's, it's, it is quite funny, is the reason it, it, that the path that Tampan on was that he was treating him as a lady, as a joke, because the ladies' tees are more are forward to the men's. Mm-hmm. And I suppose he was hoping that he would outdrive at some hole at some stage, and that's the reason he did it. He did it very discreetly. It's just that it was caught on cam- camera. But a lot of people don't understand golf there, and that's the reason he did it. It was a joke by the fact that he was, t- he was treating him as a lady because he outdriven, he outdriven. But how? Since when so does that, that, a, since when does a tampon come to symbolise a woman? Uh, well, it was only a joke. Well, I don't think men <laughs> use them, but uh, that was oh. the, that's the re- that's the reason for that. It was only a joke on that on that behalf because he was okay. you know, just a lady type of thing. So that's all it is. And people <laughs> who say people who say it's uh, misogynistic, it's sexist, it's juvenile. What would you uh, say to them? Not at all. Okay. People will say people will say anything anyway. Uh, so not at all. It was a joke. He, he, did, he didn't put it out in, in front of the camera or whatever like that. He just passed it sideways. Ah, well, I see. Then Justin Thomas. The reason for that that he, he outdrew him. In other words, you're just a lady type of thing. So so That's the callers are making a mountain out of a molehill. And they we are, sh- absolutely. And we shouldn't be allowed. To, well, that was the base of what Timmy was saying. We shouldn't be allowed to talk about Emma, Emma, what do you think of what Brian is saying? It's a joke. Yeah, I was. I was. I was going to ask you, could I respond there? And yeah. um, I think, in spite of the the explanation, is interesting and um, and valid and so on. However, everything that I said and your previous caller said about this still stands. Um, just as you said yourself. Well, say to there, us, well, Brian has argued cogently there that it's a joke. Why? Why? why how, how would you respond? Well, how would you, you respond to him about the tampon? There are jokes and there are jokes in it. And this might well have been a joke and it's based on the, the ladies' tea and so on. But the whole point, whatever Brian just said there, it, it does explain things a little bit further for sure for those of us who aren't familiar with golf and so on. However, the whole point is that one that Wood was saying to, to Thomas... Um, you're, you were weaker than me. You were worse. You were worse than me in that particular part of the game, mm-hmm. uh, because yeah, and all the signifying of the fact that the ladies' game, as it has to be called, um, is weaker. And the idea, as I said already, that a tampon suggests a woman. Of course, it suggests a woman because men don't menstruate. But there are many other things that women do. Many other things that make us different and or the same as men. It, it's the idea that mm. he hands him the tampon and that is the thing that signifies the woman and therefore that's a big joke on him because silly Thomas, he wasn't as clever as Tiger and he was stronger and better than him. At he wasn't as strong. Isn't it to do with your, your, your distancing? Maybe you can help me here, Brian. Your distance that from your your teeth, your, your driver, your distance is down. I know there's obviously an incredible scale, but it's... Um, it's to do with strength, isn't it, Brian? If you're stronger, you can hit the ball well, further. Well, generally, men men would hit it further anyway. But the thing is that I mean, he didn't actually he, he passed it to him. He, he just passed it to him. He didn't. He didn't I think slipped it to him. But everything Tiger Woods does publicly, he wasn't doing it in his back garden of his house. Well, and, well I know, I know. But if you see it, on the, he's just he's passes just that that's uh, Dustin Johnson opened his hand he didn't know what it was obviously uh, he mm. opened his hand but the reason for it is that he was just the joke was is that he was treating him as a lady <laughs> a lady goes <laughs> that in itself isn't a joke I mean I really don't I, <laughs> I, 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 I thought it was very funny when I saw it anyway 
golly. As I was well, saying, sure look, each man to his own. It's just a penny to his caught on camera. Well, in a way, whether or not it was caught on camera is irrelevant. However, the, the, the idea that it's a pity that it was caught on camera, so it's fine for Tiger Woods to be badly behaved yeah. off camera, but just because he gets caught, then it's a shame and poor Tiger gets caught and everybody's yeah. giving uh, out about him. I just think it's a terrible attitude um, and it's terrible. It's terribly reductionist. And especially when no men, no man in the mm-hmm. universe since the beginning of time can understand what it is like to deal with menstruation. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. it's particularly a pleasant part of being a woman and we don't tend to talk about it or complain about it because it is drummed into us from babyhood that we don't talk uh, about it. It's so a mountain made, idea, made out of a molehill. What? It's just a mountain made out of a molehill. <laughs> it's not really though because it's about a bigger thing. Yes, it is a very, very small thing what he yeah. did. It's a silly little joke between fellas, fine. And I understand uh, that just, and I think a lot of people understand that. However, it's no no no, it's more than just a joke because it it actually uh, expresses a much wider attitude mm-hmm. about women among certain kinds of men and it's that's what it signifies. The joke itself, yeah, I get the joke, it's fine. Um, it's a bit like yeah. a lot of the jokes that are knocking around on the internet, and particularly the beginning of COVID. A lot of them elicit a bit of a smile, but at the back of them, there's some inherent sexism, and there's inherent sexism in this little joke. And I get it that it's a joke, and yes, there's a mountain out of molehill, and yes, there is uh, a lot sorry, of their time to it. But there's a really good reason that I think there's a really good reason that Lifeline is spending the time. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, indeed. Well, that's a separate issue entirely. It didn't harm his what, Brian? His score. His score. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian is great with humour, but um, in fairness, uh, that is completely irrelevant and beside the point. Um, but look, I don't like arguing with people about uh, about things um, mm-hmm. on national airwaves. But I am, I am, I suppose I'm moved about this because it depresses me that we're here in 2023 and we're having the same old conversation. And it's about young boys yeah. and young girls and, and young people seeing these influential athletes who they look up to behaving like that. They wouldn't know what it was. What? They wouldn't know what it was. They wouldn't know what it was. Well, we, of course they know what it was because it's all over the bloody newspapers. Of course they know what it is. You yes. know, it's 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 uh, all over the newspapers. And do you know what? It's no harm. I mean, I think it's really good that Lifeline is giving time to this because they're, because people need to accept that it's not good enough. You know, if, if you're, you're not a woman yourself, you don't understand what it's like to have jokes like that made against you all the time. Mm-hmm. And but it wasn't made against. It wasn't made against. It wasn't made against women. It was made against uh, uh, Justin Leonard. Yeah, but that's the point. The point is, the joke is on your man Justin Thomas, and the joke is that he is uh, only akin to a lady golfer. Do you not see For how that, that, is, that, For how that, that is suggesting that on every level women are second to men? That's what that's the joke is. No, I said on that particular shot. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I, but don't you see how that's where the problem lies? That's that's the problem. Okay, Brian, but like, why didn't he give him a Snickers bar and say, like, you know, you need a, because, big, because you, you need a bit of strength? Wouldn't have, that, that wouldn't have any re- re- 
relevance on... Uh, well, isn't that... that sorry, is, uh, sorry, Brian, it's not exactly what Emma is saying. Women menstruate. Women get to uh, go through horrific menopause. It was up to relatively recently, it wasn't talked about. HRT was, was uh, toxic as far as the vast majority of doctors, male in Ireland and abroad, thought about HRT. Now it's changing, thankfully. We had a, a scenario in this programme a few weeks ago about the severe form of mourning, horrific form of mourning sickness that women go through when they're pregnant. I appreciate horrific. that, but that's... Yeah, yeah okay. I appreciate that, but that's... Okay. Uh, well, i tell you something, Brian. If we have... If I menstruated, if I had to go through the menopause as a man, if I had to go through that mourning sickness to that, the, those women, because they're women... That that is the the what they go through because they are women. I tell you, there'll be a lot more, and I know you do respect women. There'll be a lot more respect from this country. And a dope like Tiger Woods, a billionaire dope like Tiger Woods, wouldn't be going to get probably got one of his lackeys to fetch a tampon for him to slip it in the public in public into the hand of another golfer. Give me a break. Brian and Emma on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Morning Ireland, an extraordinary story. Ryan Gray from K9 Search and Rescue Northern Ireland spoke to Anya Lawler about finding a woman under the rubble and the scenes of devastation after the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Ryan, you only got back from Turkey late last night, I understand. You've a small team that's been over there helping with the rescue effort. Uh, you've been using your search dogs. And most recently, you helped rescue a woman alive from under that rubble uh, on Wednesday. It must have been such a roller coaster. So, Ryan Gray, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, hi, am I? We're uh, dealing with a, a, a roller coaster of emotions, I think. Um Myself and my colleague and the two the two search dogs are extremely tired. So we're just getting their thoughts together and getting their mental health sorted out at the minute um, and dealing with the aftermath, really. Now, I know, you know, we'd all seen those initial pictures on the television, but what you found when you got there, what was it like? Uh, it was carnage, uh, pure just absolute disaster. Um, we had had the, the, the news on 24-7 until we got out there trying to keep ourselves up to date and preparing ourselves for what we're going to see. It was very different when you get there. You know, you're you're actually, you have the smells, the sounds, the, the panic in the people's um, faces. These people have absolutely nothing now. You know, the, the earthquake struck in, in the middle of the night, early hours, um, and the people that got out have nothing. Their families are still trapped mm-hmm. underneath the rubble. And they're basically now living at the side of the street, looking at where they used to live in ruins. So the scale of it would make you despair, but then something like that rescue on Wednesday would give you hope. So talk to us about that time, that moment. So, yeah, so, so basically our, our routine out there was from day to day, we would go from site to site um, with the search dogs, trying to locate anybody that, that was alive. We were also then on call uh, during the night. If anybody, any of the rescue workers potentially thought they heard someone shouting for help, we would then redeploy with, with the dogs. That happened every night. On on the, the, the it was early early in the morning before breakfast, we got the call where potentially they, they thought maybe somebody was alive in the site. Six people actually, and um, they thought was alive. So we deployed um, with, with the, the hope of finding six people and the, the dogs, three dogs, Two, two, our two dogs from Northern Ireland and a dog from Portugal all alerted to indicate that there was someone uh, alive uh, under the rubble. And uh, pretty frantic then, uh, rescue efforts commenced, uh, lots of digging. Um, 
in the process of that, you come across the fatality of a child, um, and we have to we had to push on. You know, we had to keep digging and digging and digging for this one person that may be alive. And we got a yeah, there was a forty year old woman rescued alive. It, it, it's um, we're still trying to process it. Well, I'm sure that woman will be forever grateful to you as, you know, anyone is absolutely indebted to the people who have given so generously of their time uh, to go and help. And I know you're a small team and you've had to come back now. Uh, But thank you very much indeed. You must be absolutely exhausted. What time did you get in last night? Uh, Yeah, very tired. So I think uh, we got back about... Uh, back home at about nine or ten p.m. Yeah. It's it's sort of it still feels like Friday the day we left. It, it, yeah. it it's all just um, rolled in the one, and um, yeah, time to to get back into order. And as you say, we're a very small team, um, but a very we have the attitude of can do uh, and just get out there okay. and do it. I think we're the only search and rescue team from all of Ireland, and I I hope we've made Ireland proud by by going out and and doing what we've done. Yes, that's Ryan Gray on Morning Ireland with Anya Lawler. And in the morning, a fascinating insight into life in a Ukrainian prisoner of war camp for Russian soldiers. There are around 50 prisoner of war camps in Ukraine holding hundreds of Russian soldiers and conscripts in detention. While some of those will be held on suspicion of war crimes, Kiev confirmed most of them will be swapped for Ukrainian soldiers held in Russia. This has been a regular feature of the war and Kiev said this month it secured the release of 1,762 men and women so far in prisoner swaps. Well, I'm joined now by James Waterhouse, Ukraine correspondent with the BBC, who was granted access to one of these facilities and was able to speak to some of the Russians incarcerated there. Good morning, James, and thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit about where this facility is that you visited and how free the prisoners were to speak to you. What was it like? Well, there are, I've got to give a couple of caveats, really, before I even get into it. Firstly, that we we weren't allowed to say where exactly where this prisoner camp was. It was in western Ukraine. And this was a jail that ironically was used as a prison of war facility during the Second World War for Soviet soldiers and then German soldiers. So history really does have a habit of repeating itself in a way. But we've got to stress, this was Ukraine uh, granting us access. But Ukraine would be compelled to put on a good show, to show that it was treating soldiers well because it wants to secure future releases of its own soldiers and it also wants to show Western allies that it is being squeaky clean. So if this, we're talking about a, an austere, gritty jail. It, it, it was crumbling in some areas. It was incredibly quiet. And then when you moved in, you were suddenly met with 30 or 40 Russian prisoners of war in, in one room. Uh, and they, they smell. They smelt quite badly. It wasn't clear how often they were getting being able to wash. A lot of them looked malnourished. They looked defeated. They had that kind of glazed expression. And again, we spoke to some, but these are men that would have not been speaking freely. It is not in their interests to say bad things about their captors. They want to try and put, you know, impress them in order to negotiate their own exchanges. So what this was was an insight into the growing kind of prisoner economy of the war in Ukraine, the only area really, you know, one of only two areas, I think, where there has been cooperation between Kiev and Moscow. 
And James, you mentioned that they're in this room, 30 to 40 of them. Are they incarcerated in that room? Are they allowed to move around? What's the day-to-day -day life like? I think if we're using comparisons with normal jails, the, 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 the leash was quite loose. So a lot of the men had jobs. They were plastering what would be the new canteen. Some were making garden furniture. And this was good quality garden furniture. It seemed to be well rehearsed what they were doing. Uh, we, we found the same tables and chairs um, advertised online for about 100 euros. So uh, they were being put to work in that way. A lot were injured. They were limping with presumable shrapnel wounds. Some had bandages on their feet, on their hands, which suggested they could have suffered burns. Um, and what was interesting, there were a few that still had a bit of fight in them. There were still a few that wanted to interact with you. And they were curious in some ways. They went to the canteen. They had a sizable meal of barley and meat and, and vegetable soup. But again, we don't know how often they get these kind of meals. Ukraine was keen to show that they get them regularly. Uh, and they stood up at one point and thanked the prison for, the, for lunch in Ukrainian. So it was choreographed in bits. I, my sense was is that these men were not long off the battlefield. There was a lot of trauma on display and a lot of injuries. And did you think that they were getting medical treatment for those injuries? Not that as far as we saw. They had bandages on. They had crutches where, when needed. Um, and all I can really tell you is, is what we saw. So they, they had received it. Whether it was ongoing care, I do not know. Now, the garden furniture that they were making, they were being paid for that work, weren't they? Because that was a, a commercial enterprise. Did you see, did you get any indication that they were getting some money? We... we no, we, we could only go on the that, that claim by the Ukrainian guards there. They said that there was a, a private company that had a contract with the jail. Uh, and part of Ukrainian law says that prisoners do have to be offered work or put into work. So what we were told was that um, only Russian officers had the option of opting out of doing any work. But from what we saw, most were taking up that opportunity. And Claire asked James if the soldiers were allowed to call their families in Russia. They are, again, we're told they're allowed to make a phone call um, every two weeks. Uh, if it doesn't connect, they're asked if they have another, another number. We saw this. If they don't, then that opportunity has passed. I sense that this was the moment the mask brief briefly slipped. There was one young man. He rang his mum in occupied Luhansk, the eastern city of Luhansk, uh, and he told her he was alive. He was in captivity. And she used a, a, a derogatory term for Ukrainians, um, basically translating to those bloody Ukrainians. She went, what with those bloody Ukrainians? And he said, Mum, stop. The main thing is, is that I'm fine. And this is a woman who is living in a Ukrainian city. Now, she might be a Russian citizen. She might have moved there. She might have accepted the offer of a Russian passport since it was occupied nine years ago. We don't know, but it just shows that kind of division within the borders of Ukraine. Well, it also shows that he was afraid. He was afraid to have a conversation where she was potentially about to say more derogatory things about Ukrainians. And that fear was there for a reason, you've got to surmise. Absolutely. And, and there was a guard stood right over him, you know, and we were there, you know, we, we, we were still a presence as well. So you could see the kind of pressure they were under. But look, it's clearly something that is working for both sides because, you know, just yesterday, Ukraine negotiated another 100 prisoners uh, to be swapped. And these are prisoners. Most of them were defending Mariupol uh, early on in the invasion. Um, and so, you know, if they are still negotiating releases 
or exchanges more than a year into this full-scale invasion. This is a kind of an operation that is, is going to continue for some time. But there are 50 other facilities. We don't know what the conditions are like there. We don't know whether if there are more elite fighters there. When you saw this group of men, they were defeated. They did not look like uh, well-trained soldiers. Um, they were. They were. They seemed like men who just suddenly found themselves a long way from home. Um, but you know, it's it, it's always very difficult. We don't know what they had done, but it, it, it was certainly interesting. Now you uh, wrote as well about their leisure activities in, in inverted commas because they're forced, aren't they, to watch Ukrainian TV and documentaries in Ukrainian about the war? Yes, and you know it. You can't help but feel that this is a missed opportunity by the Ukrainians because the, the you know the message there was no mistaking the messaging inside this prison. You know, on the walk in, there were images of ancient Ukrainian rulers on the walls, which they were made to to march past. There were Ukrainian flags everywhere, and as you say, in this television room, um, they were made to sit and watch documentaries, and they'd watch documentaries on uh, the prisoners told us this on Ukrainian politics, on the history of Ukraine, and. You know, it, because it was in Ukrainian, you can say with relative certainty that the majority of the room would not have understood it. There are similarities between Russian and Ukrainian, but they are different languages. But then what happens is we go up and we approach a soldier and we ask, do you understand this? And he said, yes, of course, it's very, more or less, it's very, it's very informative and very educating. Take from that what you will. Um, but, you know, I think what, what Ukraine is trying to do, if what they showed us was credible, that it might be to lessen their fight, because they, if these Russian men are exchanged, they are likely to find themselves back on the battlefield. James Waterhouse, BBC Ukraine correspondent from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tipperley Show, eye-opening stats about the online influencer Andrew Tate. Um, Andrew Tate, often it's useful to mention Andrew Tate because I think that, uh, the, that, that there are a lot of young men around the country, let alone the world, who have the world of Andrew Tate in their palm of their hand. Andrew Tate, a former kickboxing world champion, once referred to married women as property that their husband, husbands own, cur- cur- imprisoned in Romania now since late December with his brothers uh, detained on alleged rape and human trafficking offences. You do not want this man on your boy's phone. That's that's as simple as that. And if I had a son, um, I think I would, for the first time, probably intervene on, on the phone and say, give it to me. And then they say, no, we can't. It's my per-. I say, give it to me now for 15 minutes and I just need to see where you're going. I want to go through the wardrobe into your weird Narnia with you for 10 minutes and see what you do. And I'd find out. And OK, I'd say, well, look, look, obviously you're doing that, that and that. that that's life. I'm not going <laughs> to kill you for that but I will we need to talk about the Tate stuff because that's not good because you see your sister over there you see your mother over there you see your auntie over there you see your granny over there now they'll be affected if you are infected by too much of this guy in your head in your hand and in your heart not good so that's what I'd say that would be my conversation I'm just having an imaginary conversation with the son I never had amazing um, but it's just, <laughs> it's just it's bad news it's bad news and uh, in the UK, this is quite a depressing figure, and that's why I'm mentioning it today, just because it's worth bringing up every now and again. But in the UK, uh, more young men uh, have seen material from Andrew Tate than have even heard of Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister. That That's how powerful the phone is. Um, they found that eight in ten boys between 16 and 17, critical age, had either read, listened to, or watched content from the misogynistic success coach, quote-unquote, and around 60% of the lads 
had heard of the PM, the Prime Minister. And that's the danger of all of this. And here's another figure that's worth, in terms of the, the gender divide, 45% of young men, or men, have a positive view of Andrew Tate. He's only saying what we're thinking. He's, and what percentage of women aged 16 to 17 have a positive opinion of Andrew Tate? The answer, one. One percent versus 45. That is a, that's a sociologist's dream number there because if you delve into that, and do the sums and figure out we are in a <laughs> culture war collision here. It's dangerous. It's bad for the schoolyard. It's bad for the classroom. It's bad for society. So that's not, that is not pretty. And it's worth, they, they, they go into this report and they talk to the children's charity over in the UK, the NSPCC, equivalent of our ISPCC. And they took a call, they talk about a call, a, a parent called the line, the hotline, about their 17-year-old son and said, I've noticed his behaviour has been changing lately. He seems to have a strong dislike towards women. Like he often refer, refers to girls as bitches and that men are basically the superior sex. And they're so influenced by Andrew Tate, they start they started picking on me and some of my friends because we are girls. This is from a, a, young, a younger person. Wanting to become things they aren't, that uh, we want to be girls who want to be things that aren't for girls, aren't for women. And it's made me feel like I'll never get into my chosen field considering people like them will be in the future generation. So that's the the the, the cesspit factor. Um, and the, another parent said he spends all his time on his phone like any teenager, teenager and I'm worried he's being radicalised from what he's viewing online. A 13-year-old girl who called the hotline for parents, for, for kids, um, said that all the boys in her class talk about Andrew Tate. Again, if I was listening to this programme this morning and I was a teacher... Uh, and I hadn't heard uh, I was teaching young boys and I hadn't heard of Andrew Tate look him up and get busy because uh, there's, an, there's a contagion and that's what it's called From the Ryan Tipperty Show And on today with Claire Byrne, what's your driving pet peeve? Merging, not indicating, not letting people out, letting too many people out. Just some of the smaller mistakes that other drivers seem to often be guilty of out on the roads. Now, obviously, there can be serious implications from bad driving and there is unfortunately a lot of dangerous driving out there as well. But today we're asking what are the little things, the pet peeves that really annoy you from other drivers? And what are we supposed to do when it comes to things like merging or roundabouts? What are the are the rules? And lots of the messages I'm getting in this morning suggest that not enough people know what those rules are. Bob Flavin is here, motoring journalist. Good morning, Bob. You're tickled by this. For everybody, it's just <laughs> no, this moment. So yes. many messages. Sheila O'Brien is with us as well, a community bike ride leader in County Cavan. Good morning, Sheila. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, uh, do text us in your thoughts on this to 51551. The email address is today, cb at rte.ie. Will I run through a couple of the many sure, messages yeah. that I've had since I mentioned this this morning? People coming out on a slip road or changing lanes, they indicate and then they just move on out thinking that they have the right of way. Mm. So indicating doesn't mean that you don't have to check, in other words. Taxis shooting in and out of bus lanes when it suits them and not indicating, oh, the taxi drivers will have steam coming out of their ears. Tommy says, not indicating at roundabouts. Paul says, it drives me crazy when you let drivers out and they don't thank you. 
Crazy, says Paul. Yeah, I can understand that. It's a very Irish thing, though. It's this tanking, tanking everybody for yeah, everything. Yeah, but and so you should. Well, of course you should, yeah. <laughs> it's even when you make a mistake, even that little wave. If you make a mistake on a road and everybody's kind of mm. angry, but you're just waving at the other driver to let them know, OK, I'm sorry. It just calms everything down. It stops that road rage moment. One of our listeners, and I think this is a really good suggestion, this is from Ellen in Tralee. Can you get your guest to explain in detail how to use roundabouts correctly? Because no one does. That's Go for true. It, Bob. Yeah. Well, the problem is we've got various kinds of roundabouts. So if you've done your driver training in a certain town, you may have two lane roundabouts. Some towns only have a little dimple in the road, but kind of a you know, it's not really. It's can, a small roundabout. You can drive type. over those ones. Can't yeah, you? you can. T- well, you can technically take <laughs> the wrong side of the road as well. The problem is you can you can dodge them, just drive straight over them. So there are all kinds of ways. So generally, the way we're taught is that we have these kind of crossroads with a roundabout in the middle, and that's the way we're taught. So there's a straight through road in both directions. So it's easy to figure that one out you can drive straight through and indicate on exit you indicate left to exit by the first exit and you indicate right to end exit by the third exit but this is Ireland we have very ancient roads we can have five exits we can have three exits we can have an exit off at an oblique angle so there's no real there is a right way of doing it there's a clever way of doing it but generally speaking if you in if you're going beyond 12 o'clock on a roundabout you would indicate right Mm-hmm. And then you would indicate left to exit on your exit. Yeah. If you're going Once you get past the last yes. one that you are not using, you then indicate left. Yes. Isn't that then it? you indicate left to exit that roundabout. Now I've seen and we see it on a daily basis. People going all the way around the roundabout without a single indicator on and in the outside lane. So they're all the way out of the outside. It's that moment where they're a little bit lost and just sort of driving around yeah. hoping they're going to get there. Uh, Sheila, what about cyclists and roundabouts? That's I even more complicated. It's it's more than complicated. It's actually terrifying. Um, for the cyclist or for the motorist? Yeah, oh, for the, well, maybe for the motorist if they see me coming on. I know how to use a roundabout. Um, but when you come in, you know, we're taught to kind of use our primary position to be very visible to the drivers, to know where we're going, to try and even get a little eye contact, like maybe even like let the driver know what you're doing. But when you come on, people aren't signaling. People don't know what they're doing like that. Some people drive all the way around. You don't know where they're going. It's really scary as a cyclist using a roundabout in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Is it scary doing other things as a cyclist as well? What about um, indicators and drivers not using them? Well, you know... You know, it's great. Drivers sometimes do use indicators to pass you, but then they pass you and they do, that's so great, but then they forget to shut them off. Okay, so they're still indicating right. Yeah, so you don't know where they're actually going, so you have to kind of hold back. Or there's something here called a left hook, and you could be driving down the road and a car will overtake you and then just decide to take a left and cut you off, and that's where a lot of accidents happen. What's the rule on that, Bob, if if you are turning left and there's a cyclist in on your left-hand side? If If there's someone actually on your left at your left door, it's illegal, it's dangerous then. But if the cyclist is behind you and you're driving on the road and the cyclist is in your rear view mirror, you can see them, they're well back and you yep. indicated left, you can turn left. It's up to the cyclist then to make their make to make to a move then. You can Absolutely. cross the cycle lane. But that doesn't make it right morally, it doesn't make it safe either. The cyclist is the most vulnerable person in a road user. So, so the cyclist is expected to stop yes, if they're behind the you and you're turning left. Yep, they're just other traffic on the road. When it comes yep. to the law, a cyclist, a scooter, a bicycle, electric scooters, they're all just other 
traffic. They're unlicensed traffic. They're mm-hmm. maybe untrained traffic. So some cyclists have never had a driver's license or taken a test or rules of the road, that sort of stuff. That can happen. Uh, young dri- uh, cyclists, particularly, you know, teenagers wouldn't have taken any of that stuff. But when it comes to road craft, road users, the, the, the drivers are all trained and licensed and have to take courses and do all that. But when it comes to turning left, it can be a scary situation for everybody. And Claire asked Bob about the proper way to merge in traffic. Another thing I want to ask you about is merging, because I think this is a controversial one. People might disagree with your advice here. So let's imagine two lanes become one. Mm -hmm. Do you drive all the way down the right hand lane and then ask to be let in? Or do you merge as soon as possible? You drive, you use all available road space. So you should use all the space down until the merging point. There's no early merging point. There's no blocking the merging lane or trying to get in. What should happen is all of the traffic should behave like a zipper on a jacket. It all just zips together and the traffic continues moving. What happens, what really happens is people try to block you getting into that space and they take the space and then two queues form all of a sudden mm-hmm. and you've got this problem Is with that not really irritating though? If you're on the left-hand side and you see all of these people coming up on your right-hand side taking up all the available space is one way of putting it. Skipping the queue mm. is another way of putting it. But you're saying they're right. They are right, yeah. They should use both lanes. It actually moves the traffic on a bit faster. Yeah, that really if, annoys me. I know, I know. Of course, you would sit there furiously <laughs> yeah. blocking Blocking that space, I know, I can see by the look in the face. Um, we- <laughs> yeah, that's even more frustrating. That's very frustrating for a cyclist and very dangerous too, because again, like Bob said, we're very vulnerable. We're sharing the road too. And when you're trying to get into a situation where it's been two lanes and you're riding on your left, or if you're in your primary to tie and take a right, cars just won't let you in. We're in competition for some reason, and we are going a lot slower, and we are not protected by any metal or anything around us. So you say that the car is driving right into the verge or the footpath on the left-hand side and not letting you into that space. They just won't let, yeah, they won't let you in. Yeah, that's just rude. Primary um, position yeah. is a really good point that, that mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of skipping over that word, where a cyclist takes up a position similar to a motorbike or a car and yeah. occupies a space on the road that's bigger than themselves. And it's a very good position to be in because the driver won't try and squeeze the cyclist because there is no room for the driver. Exactly. So there's no room to get around. That's what primary position is. And it's really good advice for all cyclists to take up that position it feels dangerous at first yes but actually you will be much safer in that position because you'd be very visible and no one's going to try and squeeze you off 100 percent. and once you have confidence like we claire just real quick like we run a community bike road scheme on communitybikes.ie and that's free and it gets right people out and lets people build up confidence and the leaders will try and help people with road safety and how they should be presented on their bikes and the department of transport um, minister eamon ryan they've just started supporting us with this so they're all over Ireland and if we can train people to be better cyclists then we can all use the road safely. Now let's talk about one of your pet peeves Sheila and I know that is waving people out. So what's oh. going on there? Tell me what upsets you. Um, it upsets me because what, you know, I have a car driver since I was 16 and I'm 54 now so it's a long time. But if you're in a group of cyclists one pet peeve of mine is cyclists shouldn't be waving cars to pass them. Mm-hmm. If a vehicle, if a car, if a car is driving and it can't see that it's clear itself, it should not be crossing a group of cyclists. Yeah, but they're, they're, the cyclist is trying to help the motorist out there, right? But yeah, but if anything happens, who's who's at fault? Bob? Mm, she's absolutely correct, yeah. If you're letting people out of a junction, out of side junctions, and you're waving them furiously into the traffic and a collision happens, that driver's going to say, well, I was waved out by another driver, I was waved out by a cyclist, I was waved on, 
and a head-on collision can happen. So yeah. from a position, I know bicycles are often very much higher than a car, so you can see yeah. further down the road, you can see over yeah. hills, all sorts of stuff. But actually, you shouldn't really get involved in it. You mm-hmm. should leave it up to the driver behind you. You know yeah. when a, another motorist is waving you out, whether mm. it is to turn right or whatever it might be, they can get very frustrated when you don't take the opportunity <laughs> that they have presented to you, even though it might not be safe in your judgment as the person who's going to make the turn. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a very leftover thing from getting people out of junctions, flashing lights and things. But it is, it does come with a consequence. If something happens during that moment, the insurance company will be asking, what happened to you? You pulled yeah. out in front of a car because I was told by X, Y, by Claire Burns to come out of the junction. <laughs> uh, Tony is frustrated by the number of people who drive around day and night with fog lights and or spotlights on. He says uh, he's convinced many of them don't know that they're doing it. You see, yeah, most cars will have their lights on. Or if you leave your switch on automatic, mm. you'll have your normal lights on, not your fog lights on, though. No, not fog lights. Fog lights is a, is a switch in the car and usually there's a yellow light on the dashboard somewhere that'll say there's just fog lights on in the car whether they be the front or the back fog lights that are on but leaving your fog lights on during the day or during the night when it's not foggy means you might not be able to see the brake lights come on when someone actually breaks so yes. there's huge mm-hmm. bright light on the back of the car it's Bob Lavin and Sheila O'Brien from Today with Claire Byrne And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Bell X1's frontman Paul Noonan came into studio to talk about the mighty power of music in healing and soothing the soul in times of difficulty. He completed his master's in music therapy. I had been playing music, writing music, uh, performing music for a long time and I kind of I felt like there's something more to this. There's something to be bottled here and yeah. and used in in a different way you know that sort of that elemental sense of connection that music brings both in making it and in 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 performing and feeling that connection with the crowd so i just I did started doing some reading around around music and and the brain and neurology and how music works i suppose mm. And what led me to music therapy, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know there was a formal discipline. You, you made you made a comment before you came on air as we were chatting about that, that, that for some people, a lot of the, the music therapy, and you said play therapy and drama therapy, for people who haven't seen it in, in action, and you weren't being dismissive, you're just making comment because you, you said for, for a lot of people, it's, for, it's, it's for, uh, away with the fairies, I think you said it, kind of for the birds sort of thing over there. And I was definitely one of those people who kind of dismissed it a little bit going, oh, this kind of seems like the hippy-dippy kind of schooling type of thing um, until I saw it in action and I saw nonverbal kids responding to music and dance and I said, ah, and yeah. the light went on in my head and I thought, OK, I'm all in here. And it, so when you started looking into music yeah. therapy, what did you what did you discover and, and where did the traction come? Well, I mean, it's, it, it is. It's a proper evidence based clinical intervention, mm. you know, in, in, and there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of writing, a lot of evidence around how it improves people's lives in all kinds of ways. So, I mean. I, I suppose I, I I read a book called Musicophilia by the neurologist Oliver Sacks, mm-hmm. who, who's written a lot about music and, and the brain and it just how the neural pathways that music use uses are different to to our normal sort of other brain functions. So which is why it's it's sometimes left intact when a lot of other brain function isn't, and and how it can be used then to rebuild brain function um, in the event of say you know brain injury and, and that kind of thing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a. Uh, it, it was, and then it led me on to 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 to, to reading about uh, about music therapy and and working with children, children with autism, uh, helping with language development, with emotional regulation, with 
you know, because with with kids, like fun goes a long way. You know, yeah, it's fun sure. and goofing off. Yeah, and it's a great music is a great gateway uh, for that reason. Yeah, it, lo- it opened a door that might have been hermetically sealed previously. Yeah. Uh, you went to study, obviously, the only the only show in town really is yeah. in Limerick. So t- tell me about that. Yeah, I, I did a two year master's uh, brilliant course in, in Limerick. And, and it, I suppose it was an element of, you know, I'd, I'd been out of academia for 20 plus years at mm. that point, And I was definitely the elder statesman of the class, okay. <laughs> which was a trip. But um, it was just great to, to, to get back into learning and and finding a way of of sort of formally addressing this feeling that I had that music had this incredible power and and having felt that power, have, finding ways to to sort of to bottle that yes to 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 be able to then deploy it in 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 these clinical and community settings you know and with that you you kind of get your your masters and you're kind of armed almost with the with the with the with the, with the document in your hand to say I'm ready to go for it uh, the world shuts down. Yeah. And you're sitting at home going, hang on, I was about to go out and march into this whole, yeah. whole new world. Uh, and this, I suppose, brings us to your your, your lockdown adventure, which yeah. which was really exciting and, and, and very enjoyable. Uh, again, give us a sense of what sure. that was. And how- when lockdown happened, I was on my last placement as part of the course. It was the Thursday when Leo got up and said, schools are closing that day. Yeah. And it was in there, it was in there that day. And it, so it was a very brutal way I suppose of ending the placement and the working with with the children there I was working with very young children in a preschool in the inner city here in Dublin and yeah. uh, as a way of trying to stay in touch with them I started a, a Facebook live stream from my own home with my own kids and we called it the electric kazoo because the kazoo is the great is the great leveler anyone can play a kazoo if you can home <laughs> you can play a kazoo yeah so uh, we the kids were from the school were tuning in and it sort of grew legs more and more people started tuning in during lockdown. We did it every Thursday afternoon during lockdown when kids when uh, schools were closed. Yeah, and uh, it was just I mean it was a great thing for us as a family as well to sort of to 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 because music I suppose being a professional musician it was always it was a kind of it's not something we necessarily did as a family but this was it sort of it democratized I suppose music it, it wasn't about me performing my my creations it was about goofing off and making up silly songs and tr- connecting down the internet with 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 kids all over the yeah, world and Ryan asked Paul about the experience he gained on placements in the music therapy course we had had some great placements as part of the course working I'd, I'd worked with people with disabilities I'd worked in a hospice uh, I'd worked with the children and I'd worked with uh, adults with um, with with acquired brain injury, so it was a great spectrum of experience. And then I've gone on to continue the work with the children and to continue continue the work uh, in 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 hospice care. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, when you when you look at the, the 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 brain injuries and difficulties people have in their life, talk talk me through some of the types of people you might be dealing with. For example, I know that you have one client uh, with dementia, and you know you spoke to his family and. You know, whereas his family are probably trying to deal with the medical side of things and bills and where to put to, to place his their 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 beloved family member, you hone in on the music and say, "What did he listen to?" What's yeah. he? talk to me about that, that that process. For people, I mean, as somebody is living with dementia and as their as as sort of the personhood is sort of unraveling yes. in, in lots of ways, music can bring them back to very specific points in their lives and bring people from their lives really vividly to life so I find that uh, that these certain songs 
when someone no longer recognizes their, their loved ones, they can they can remember all the words to uh, Carolina by James Taylor or yeah. Sound of Silence by uh, Simon and Garfunkel. You know, the, the, these songs. And then I'd often take these songs and, and customize them with this person to, 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 so that the songs speak to their life and their loved ones and, and their home. And what does that do when you play a Simon and Garfunkel song to a man who always loved their music? What's what? What is he doing in front of you in terms of response? Uh, he's singing. He's, he's he's remembering. Yeah, yeah. He's remembering. He's he's remembering the words of the song. He's 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 obviously gone back somewhere in his brain. His his he has this wistful look comes over him, um, and he's connecting with him with with himself. Yeah, with with an element of himself. I wonder is it is it is it lucidity as we know it. Or is it a sort of a, a trigger that that doesn't necessarily connect with reality? I, I think it as somebody is becoming untethered from reality, it brings them back to realities from their past and from okay. their person. Okay, and so I think that's a really powerful thing. It's it's hitting into the hard drive and suddenly find, finding memories that are yeah. kind of connecting a little bit. Uh, you have a patient with the with the brain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, somebody who loves his his music. Talk to me about him and 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 what what you're doing for him and how. Yeah. So, he's this is a man who's um, in my age. He's in his late forties, and he, fifteen years ago, he had a kite surfing accident and has been left in a minimal minimally conscious state since. But the ways of reaching him are through touch and through sound. He will follow a sound source around the room. So uh, again, speaking at length to, f- to loved ones, I kind of gathered a sense of who he is and, and the music that he liked. So I, I would play some of those songs, but I would also set up a sort of immersive musical environment in his room with, with two speakers and a, and a loop pedal where I would loop up certain sounds and he, 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 his, he becomes very alert and very engaged and very curious about certain sounds and, and looks towards them in depending on where they are in the stereo field, you know. So creating that sort of neuro, neural activity mm-hmm. that, those, that, that, that obviously triggers um, a lot of sort of brain function for him and, and stimulates him. So, Do, do the families of, of the people you're talking about, do they, are they ever present for this? Sometimes, yeah, definitely. I encourage families. I would to have thought present, so. Yeah. It must be very nice for them to it, see. Absolutely. And, and the therapeutic value is very much there for them too. Yeah, because the person who had a vacant look in their eyes suddenly seems to have focus. And yeah. you just don't go, it's like they've, somebody handed them a map for yeah. five minutes. Because with, with people living with those conditions, there's a, there's an, there's an internal life going on. We don't know to what extent we don't know what that looks like, but there yeah. is an internal life going on. And I think part of what music therapy does across the life spectrum is it honors life as it finds it. And Ryan asked about other people who can benefit from music therapy. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a brain injury in the sense that you, you, you can deal with, with young people at risk, people who might have had a you know violent background who were just yeah. stuck with the wrong lotto numbers, as you say, in life and, and the cruelty yeah. of, of that. Um, what what can you do to help children like that? I'm intrigued to know where music will will yeah. comfort them or bring them somewhere they need to be. I mean that setting I mentioned where I'm working with with kids in the inner city, yeah. very young kids, age three or four, five. That um, it's a preschool, so a lot of kids would 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 have come would have had a difficult start in life would would have would have uh, would have witnessed uh, drug use or or 
possibly violence at mm-hmm. home. So uh, creating that sort of safe, contained space with the music is it, it, it's it's very much part of this positive interaction with an with an adult is and and consistent um, uh, interaction with an adult week after week. And often these kids will 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 make up songs and they'll 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 lash a drum for a little while and 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 have this sort of really visceral experience and and it's but it's in a very sort of contained safe space so they get to express themselves in that way in a positive sense that otherwise may come out in some in a, in a in a negative way outside the music therapy room. Okay, so so I would love songs like the Great Defector and and. Um, Rocky Took a Lover, among your great songs that you've yeah. uh, written and sung beautifully. Um, and then I think of Beans. Uh-huh. And I think, how can the same man <laughs> who does this uh, uh, do that, if you like, do this? Tell me the point of the song. As, as You talk a lot, a lot this morning about Goof, which I'm a fan yeah. of, as you probably can gather. Yes, indeed. Uh, so tell me about <laughs> the importance of Goof. And, and Goof is a great gateway. It is a gateway <laughs> drug to happiness. <laughs> <laughs> to more, you know, to more um, substantive things. But like Goof uh, and Fun and play and silliness are, are absolutely you know and I, and it's not just limited to kids so this is a song that I, that I would have written with with I suppose with several kids adding to it as we went but um, it's a song called beans and it, again it's it's a gateway it's a way of of, of creating these the this 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 trust uh, and this 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 contained safe environment so this is called beans a little bit of beans Beans, beans, good for your heart. Beans, beans, good for your heart. Beans, beans, good for your heart. The more you eat them, more you like them. <laughs> oh, hey, do you like broccoli? No. Oh, don't be so mean. Our little green friend gets such a hard time. But he's not as tough as he seems. Oh, beans, beans, good for your heart Beans, beans, good for your heart Beans, beans, good for your heart The more you eat, the more you like them (laughs) I can see why that would... uh... You know, knock a, <laughs> knock a nice smile out. And if you've got a kid banging a drum, getting a lot of anger, frustration or, or joy out of them, uh, yeah. that's that's so sweet. I love that. Um, coru, from the Irish word, uh, from the word choir or, or core, meaning fair, just and proper, as you can gather. I'm reading this. I don't, I don't know it off by heart, but they're lobbying to have music therapy offered as part of the curriculum in Ireland. And from, from my understanding, talking to some people about this, uh, Paul, is that uh, there is a move to try and get music therapy taken a lot more seriously. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Who, who needs to take it seriously? Where and how? And uh, why? Well, we know why. You've told us why. but Yeah, I, I suppose it's it's not fully sort of embedded in the health service in the way that it should be in okay. terms of as an offering across the health service. Paul Noonan from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself, till next time.